Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 214. In this episode, we're talking about trauma and moral injury with Dr. Brian Powers. Dr. Powers is Van Fellow in Christianity and the Armed Forces and Executive Director of the International Center for Moral Injury at Durham University. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. John Anthony Dunn, Dr. Brandon Hurlbert, and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. So, John, Brandon, what were some things that struck you as we spoke with Brian? It was really great to have uh, Brian on the podcast. Uh, him and I sit next to each other. We share an office. And so we've been having a lot of great conversations over the years uh, just about what moral injury is. Uh, he's uh, in this episode, he gives a really clear and simple definition uh, and really helps us to see how it interacts uh, and is a bit different uh, with uh, trauma and the other definitions and conversations we've been having on, uh, we have in, in this series. Yeah, I really appreciated this conversation. Uh, Dr. Powers talks a lot about uh, some of his own personal experiences as a veteran. And we also talk about examples from film and we talk about some of the boundaries of what uh, constitutes moral injury or not. And so it was very informative and, and, and powerful to, to, uh, to hear uh, his reflections. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And if you appreciate what we do here at The Two Cities, please consider joining our Patreon community to support our work and receive bonus content. Look for us on Patreon, follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Matthew Kim. Well, great. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on our podcast, Brian. Sure. Yep. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. It's always fun uh, to invite people you share an office with uh, for uh, the normal work day onto a podcast after hours uh, to continue talking about uh, the subjects that uh, they're passionate about. Uh, Brian, uh, you have been uh, teaching me a lot about moral injury and about uh, different responses to trauma. I wanted if you w- wanted to share with our listeners just a little bit about probably the first question I asked you when I first met you, which was, what is moral injury? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. I mean, it's, it is certainly um, something that the definition of it is something that we fight over and argue about even amongst um, researchers and scholars now. And that's partially because it has so many different facets and it's difficult to have one definition that's really all encompassing. Um, I'll step back for a minute and just say, you know, this emerges from a military context, but it's not only in the military. Um, it's a form of trauma that uh, is suffered by folks, again, mainly who endure combat situations, but also in other contexts. And I can get to that in a moment. But I'd say moral injury is characterized by the um, lingering and um, pervasive experience of guilt, shame, um, anger, contempt, uh, what we call the moral emotions that results from either the betrayal of, uh, violation, or suppression of values that we deeply hold. And you can see why perhaps mil- the military situations would be um, the most acute places in which that suffered, in which you'd encounter situations that are difficult to reckon morally, but also that have ones that really test and push boundaries in terms of what our values might be and have really high stakes um, when we don't live up to those. So moral injury is kind of that experience that results from those things occurring. And then it can result in our feeling like we can't trust institutions to make moral decisions. We can't trust ourselves to act in line with our own values. And we lose what um, the VA psychiatrist coined the term, his name is Jonathan Shea. We lose what he called social trust, the capacity to actually trust that some moral framework in society is going to make sense. That both we're going to be able to live into that and that others are going to be able to as well. 
and it kind of destroys our sense of order in the world um, in a certain way. So in many ways, perhaps as I'm talking through this, you can see this is not the same as post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that um, often co-occurs with it in military veterans. Uh, that's our bodies and uh, minds response to situations of trauma. And so then it, it basically, you know, our bodies become conditioned to ex the experience of extreme fear and stress and that creates different systems within us as we adapt to it. Both our minds trying to incorporate really traumatic events and our bodies processing it. Our moral, moral reflections uh, are something else. There's another order uh, from that that occur in really a different space. So those two things are different. There's a big argument about whether moral injury is a clinical um, thing is it's been identified really helpfully by psychiatrists and psychological researchers, but then has also grown into a really broad field examined in an interdisciplinary way, particularly by theologians like myself, philosophers, political theorists, literary critics, folks who have kind of work with different worldviews that try to understand and comprehend how frameworks of meaning are helpful in helping people figure out what those values are that they want to recover um, from situations of moral injury. So that's a really long um, intro there, but hopefully some good um, groundwork for us to start from. So Brian, where did um, this category arise and um, who are some of your primary interlocutors? Yeah. So um, I feel like military veterans, the best way to say this is military members perhaps experience moral injury in the most acute ways, the situations they face where violence is applied, where they're using violence, um, have really high stake situations. So one example, I noted that Jonathan Shea coined the term moral injury. He says, it's present when there's been a betrayal of what's right by a pers person in position of authority in a high stakes situation. So if you imagine what those high stakes situations are for the military, they're really high stakes. It's usually life and death. It involves, um, people surviving or not surviving an incident, destruction of things, irreversible consequences in a major way that aren't probably hard to imagine. We also see moral injury occurring in other contexts as well, though, particularly the pandemic gave us a really broad kind of view into moral injury in healthcare settings, how doctors and nurses who using that same understanding of betrayal don't really have the resources they need. And some of the political decisions make it difficult for them to treat patients adequately and when they don't, they're the ones that end up kind of on, to use a military term, the you know pointy end of the spear in terms of having to deal with patients' deaths um, and having to process their own sense of responsibility for those um, in huge ways. So those have been what I try to do kind of in processing it from a theological standpoint is taking a lot of those ideas, Jonathan Shea, like I said, who defines it that way. Other clinicians, there's two big definitions, so I should mention the other one is by a group led by Brett Litz, who argued that um, moral injury was perpetrating, failing to prevent, bearing witness to, or learning about actions that transgress deeply held moral values. And so I, what I try to do is kind of look at and take what clinical and empirical evidence tells us about moral injury, tells us about how we understand it, maybe what some of its contours are. And then also, however, recognize that this occurs within big frameworks and how we understand the world, how we understand ourselves, how we understand these values. And so folks that help us think through that are really valuable to me. So um, Augustine, unsurprisingly, as a Christian theologian, is a major um, influence there. Specifically, he talks a lot about ways that... Um, our understanding of what is good is deeply influenced um, externally. And I think that's a really valuable um, way to look at things. I think that translates really well um, in a 21st century life where, you know, we're coming to understand perhaps more than we have in, you know, centuries prior, how we're impacted culturally, how cultural values seep into us from all different things we consume. Certainly in an age of digital media, it's really easy to start pointing out, um, you know, how we're soaking in things that we see, that we hear, that we take in, that we look at on TikTok and those kind of things, how that 
influences how we interact with the world in other ways as well. Um, and so I think that's been really helpful just in um, looking at things in an Augustinian framework um, because it gives us some perspective that doesn't place responsibility exhaustively on us that allows us also to look at societal forces that impact things a good bit. Thank you, Brian. That's really helpful. Um, I wonder if you could help us to relate these category or the category of moral injury and some of what you've said to the more maybe uh, widely known category of trauma. Yeah. So I think, you know, in military terms, even, and I think this hopefully serves as a blanket for um, a broader sense, but we talk about combat trauma as kind of all the different ways that the experience of being in a combat zone might be traumatic. Um, we talked a little bit about PTSD as an obvious kind of one thing that was very well known form of trauma. One of the ways that um, the study done by uh, Brett Litz and other psychiatrists in 2009, one of the things they did was they noted that PTSD is really helpful in talking about how we survive threats to ourselves, um, the trauma of surviving something. And this is obviously shared by not just military members, but, you know, survivors of trauma and civilian and any other context, but that idea that it has to be something significant threat to our own lives to be traumatic. But they noted that there wasn't anything that encompassed the idea of how we respond when we do harm to others. Um, and that's really where moral injury tries to capture from their perspective saying this doesn't PTSD doesn't quite get at what happens and how we respond to taking responsibility when bad things happen to others. And we're responsible for that. In a military instance, this is really easy to say, of course, military is tasked literally with applying violence um, to others. So it's really directly um, meaningful in that context. But in plenty of others, you know, what happens when we're responsible for someone and our actions result in harm? How do we understand that? That's different than PTSD. That's a different set of moral emotions within us. And certainly, how do we um, react as well? And Jonathan Shea's idea that if something, if what's right's been betrayed, how do we view people who've done that? We can also react with anger and contempt and can't really kind of that almost uh, very emotional understanding that an injustice here has occurred particularly in a military context too, many people don't get face accountability for those situations. And that creates real feelings of lingering contempt that can cause, that can really break down our sense of social trust in that way. So there's certainly some commonalities with, like I said, both post-traumatic stress symptoms in other ways, but also it's a very different thing in terms of how we understand ourselves and our own actions that are very deliberate, I think. So you mentioned earlier that there were other um, areas outside of uh, militaristic contexts where moral injury is applicable and relevant. Could you uh, tell us more about uh, those other settings as well? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, the, again, pandemic being one where you experience it in healthcare, um, certainly in a large way. One of the interesting things we found in the pandemic, though, it's not simply healthcare workers who are struggling with that. Um, we held a conference last April at Durham, and we had people present in different ways, both clinical researchers, um, folks doing um, qualitative research on folks who'd suffered moral injury and policing and several other respects. One of the things we seemed to kind of identify was that the situation of the pandemic and the fact that people were dying and the uh, disease was so contagious meant that normal kind of mundane decisions became fraught with moral consequence they normally wouldn't have had. So, for example, for Brandon, I can probably relate to this, but as, you know, when you're teaching classes, you know, there there was a, a couple weird periods where it was kind of like you can do it in person or you can keep it online, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic. But against the backdrop where you don't know what the moral you know, consequences of that are going to be a very innocuous decision about whether to hold a lecture online or put the class or do it in person could suddenly be a life and death um, matter. So that idea of kind of the consequences of my actions could be somebody's dying. Having that really caused a lot of moral tension uh, in our lives that we may not want to categorize as full-blown moral injury in the same way combatants experience it, but that certainly is present in some degree there. 
It also comes about in different contexts where we see a similar situation. Um, veterinarians in the U in the UK, for example, uh, there was, um, trying to remember the correct term for mad cow disease. Um, but anyway, it was an outbreak here in what early two thousands and some veterinarians were tasked, especially on, you know, with going and culling large herds of livestock, um, on the edges of this. So being the one that has to go and euthanize a farm of thousands of healthy, otherwise healthy animals, and then kind of have to wonder whether this was the right decision, whether you had to do this to stop the disease or not. Um, I think lives with causes moral injury as well. That idea of perhaps why am I the one in this in placed in this? Why is that moral weight all fall on me to have to make this decision? Um, that can feel very much, I think, like a betrayal of what somebody set out to do, particularly for veterinarians. And in this case, most of them, most of whom would have gotten involved, presumably, because they enjoy animals and want to save animal life and protect it, and then end up being tasked with taking it in a mass scale that can feel, I think very much like a betrayal of the values that brought them there in the first place. Um, so to, one of the tensions that I think exists is always, does this represent moral injury from in a way that is consistent and can be, that we can say this is the same thing categorically as what military members experience. And then, okay, maybe this is similar, but, can't quite be said in the same breath um, in some ways as we expand ideas that gets brought up sometimes in lower stakes situations. And I really think that idea that Jonathan Shea brings up that this has to be a high stakes situation on the end of it is helpful to kind of figure out, is this something somebody could recover from? Does this have irreparable consequences? Those kind of things are kind of a helpful marker of determining whether something in a different situation could be considered moral injury. When you say, is this something someone could recover from? You mean physically. Is that right? Like there's less of an emphasis on their ability to recover maybe mentally or something like that. Yeah, that, that, that's a helpful way to say it. I, I think, yeah, what I'm intending to get at there is we, we call these um, potentially morally injurious situations. So something that, you know, could be cause somebody to experience moral injury. And is the outcome of that a really high stakes thing. Does it, cause in the military, like I said, almost always that's going to be, this costs someone live their life. This causes, um, perhaps failure to protect a comrade or excess deaths of the enemy even. Um, and does the thing that causes the morally injurious event, is that a high stakes situation? So perhaps certainly we want to say people could recover from moral injury and we know they can in different ways, but, is that situation, does it involve something that really kind of is, it doesn't have to be irreparable, of course, but a significant impact. Um, and this gets tricky. Um, but I know when it gets brought up, one of the, I've sat on the um, steering committee for the American Academy of Religions Moral Injury Unit for several years. And one of the interesting things is when we get papers brought some of them want to analyze moral injury in different contexts. So moral injury in education, for example. And I'm like, yeah, I can see why that fits the definition sort of, but is that the same as somebody who experiences moral injury because they did something and 20 people died in Iraq? I'm like, not quite. So there's, there's a bit of a note when we see it kind of evaluation that has to happen there. But yeah, I think it's about whether that, whether something is that high stakes outcome. I think that's really helpful. I mean, I, I've been sort of like parsing through different categories of things. And one that comes to mind in part because I teach incarcerated persons right now in mm. the class at the Muskegon Correctional Facility. Um, I think of um, my students who have caused harm, um, some of which is high stakes. But in my understanding, they might not necessarily fit the category of moral injury because there, it's not just about what an individual has done, but it's their role within a system and the way that the system has almost um, necessitated uh, their actions. And so I wonder, um, I, I'm, I'm inclined to say that that doesn't fit, but then 
um, I also wonder, um, as we think about systemic oppression and poverty and those kinds of systems, like, is, is there a way of moving into moral injury with these ideas? I, I don't know. Yeah. So the other, that's really helpful because that kind of leads me well into what I think really is at the heart of moral injury. And that's this difficult questions about agency. Um, this is why, again, I find Augustine really helpful, uh, because I think he has a very nuanced understanding of human agency and kind of the moral psychology that results. Um, Jonathan Shea's idea of betrayal, like I said, that idea of there's a betrayal of what's right by a person in a position of authority in a high stakes situation often gets categorized as a betrayal type of moral injury. So that in that sense, there's a way in which certainly we're responsible for our actions individually. And I think you would acknowledge that, but the sense, there's a sense that my, my responsibility and my sense of honor and my sense of agency has been put towards an end that betrays my own value. So Jonathan Shea works with a lot of veterans of the Vietnam War who obviously experienced this in very acute ways, this idea that there's there's so many leadership issues in that that come out of that conflict where you can understand decisions are made, orders are given that people follow and then feel like I've I, I'd ceded some measure of trust in my leadership that they weren't going to put me in situations that betrayed my own sense of values. There's a common value here that we all share that we're all going to honor and that gets broken. There's this other idea that the Litz definition, which is more focusing on perpetrating, failing to prevent things is more about what we do directly and us kind of violating our own values. Now to me, Augustine helps kind of fuse those together by recognizing, you know, maybe we don't have as much agency even as we often think we do to change our circumstances. Augustine holds this idea, right, that we can't change our perception of what's good, almost at a, if we translate this into psychological terms, we can't quite have access to our sense of that, of good. It's almost um, subconscious. Um, it gets formed so deeply within us. But when we act in service of that, we do take on an amount of responsibility. So even if our actions are kind of constricted in ways that we can't always choose, we're exercising responsibility within that. And we therefore take on um, a certain degree of moral kind of agential weight and responsibility for it. I think it's really helpful to kind of to look at that way as a spectrum of which we can kind of measure and find ourselves because we, his idea is that we're always willing, we're always making choices, even if we don't have access to great choices, even if they're really constricted. And that haunts us um, a lot of times. And I think that opens up the idea for us to find where we fit within that. I think that moral, moral injury is often in my mind, the view of a good conscience struggling just to make sense of, the world struggling to make sense of how my actions um, matter in the world. What framework do I use to evaluate my own? Um, and so I think people in different contexts struggle with that in obviously different ways, but that idea that agency itself is, is difficult. It's nuanced um, is really helpful. And I think moral injury helps us recognize all of those ways in which it manifests are some versions of betrayal of things we hold, whether we just don't have the agency to change it or whether we've been put in direct situations um, of betrayal. So it sounds like when we've been thinking about trauma, you know, I think a lot of people's first ideas about trauma is something that, uh, you know, an action, an event, something that's probably really bad that happens to you or to a person and they mm -hmm. have to deal with that. Uh, and it seems like moral injury is more about kind of uh, not excluding that, but flipping that. Whereas you are actually doing something that uh, might be deemed traumatic to uh, or, or thrust into a situation where you have to make choices uh, that are will lead to trauma either for yourself or for another person and wrestling with the moral dimension of those choices. Uh, so rather than 
uh, only responding to the event uh, or the, the the trauma that's happening uh, to you. You're also wrestling with the the kind of the decisions that led up to that, and also the decisions that you make uh, in light of that. Uh, and moral injury is a, a a term that incorporates trauma in a very basic sense, uh, but really is more interested in the kind of uh, uh, the moral reasoning that goes be behind that. But it's not necessarily concerned with ethics about how one should have acted in that situation. Is that is that a kind of the Venn diagrams there? Does that kind of make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's largely right. I think it, you know, there's a it does. It is a helpful way to say that to shift it onto you know maybe we're doing things that are traumatic to others. That's a helpful way of kind of understanding that idea of a high stakes situation. On the other end of it, is this going to traumatically affect other people? And I think that's a that's probably a fair um, way to look at it. It's also helpful, perhaps, to introduce the, the idea too, though, that it's not two categories that I think are helpful and also incredibly unhelpful in um, talking about this are. This is about as academic a phrase as you'll ever hear, I know. Um, there's Some people like to refer to it as agential moral injury, which is moral injury caused by the things I do directly, and something they might call receptive moral injury, which is through the agency of others, I tend to lose faith in institutions, lose a framework of meaning for these kind of things. Um, I find that helpful in breaking apart the idea that some, for example, s- systemically oppressed or disenfranchised folks can find themselves experiencing moral injury. That idea of consistent injustice, consistent betrayal of values that affects their community in, u- in particular ways. Um, you know, not hard to figure out uh, examples of this. Um, certainly black communities in the U.S. in terms of policing injustice within the legal system could experience moral injury in the fact that they lose faith in institutions to act in moral ways. And so there's an, almost an expectation of injustice and that becomes a norm, which becomes a really difficult place we know psychologically uh, to live. There's also a way in which the idea of moral injury as placing it in receptive, though, also limits the ways that we understand how toxic that can become. Um, there's I kind of prefer to look at it again using Augustinian terms. Uh, there's a theologian here in Alistair McFadden that's talked about how um, he uses two examples in his book to note understanding of willing is really helpful in, in thinking about moral injury because he looks at child victims of abuse and Nazi killing units in the Holocaust and says, you know, here's a, one group is the most probably blameworthy people we can think of off the top of our heads and perhaps the least blameworthy people we could think of and says that because we're both make willing, we're all, both of those groups are making choices. Both of them are willing. They both perceive a sense of responsibility about it. So even children who have survived situations of abuse, who are making choices to keep that secret, even though we recognize they don't have agency, they don't have any sense of blame in here. However, from their perspective, they're making choices to keep that secret and they're taking responsibility for a part in it for themselves. And that becomes really difficult um, for them to process and move on from simply because that sense of responsibility can't be taken away or ameliorated so easily. So that idea of moral injury, even in communities that experience it due to the weight of others have to make choices, have to find um, senses of good and their willing is active in there. So while Augustine helpfully kind of says, hey, that's, you know, this is because our willing is active, you know, we can understand that without putting blame on those situations as well. And perhaps using moral injury as a category to precisely not blame, but understand. So earlier when you were talking about your uh, work with AAR um, and you talked about how, you know, the certain proposals were sort of testing the limits of moral injury, I'm wondering if we could maybe like look a little bit more closely at where like the boundary is, how fuzzy is this? So um, as you were talking about the kind of uh, lack of trust in institutions and these sorts of things, it makes me wonder about the way that I know a lot of, um, you know, 
Christians who grew up in conservative contexts have felt about the generations that taught them, you know, morals and ethics and theology uh, and seeing how quickly they, you know, got swept up in the Trump stuff, for example. And, mm-hmm. and, and that disillusionment, of course, and the disenchantment. Is it just that or is there a sense in which there's a moral injury here about, wait, wait, wait I thought we all had these shared values? Um, is that an inappropriate use of the term or would that be applicable mm-hmm. here? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think if we look at, you know, if you look at, again, Shay's definition of, is that a betrayal of what's right and that sense of value in by people we looked up to in positions of authority in a way that has real and significant consequence for a lot of people in a high stakes situation? Yeah, I think we can term, you know, certainly term that, um, you know, as <laughs> from a theological perspective too, this echoes, you know, the experience of several different major theologians, Karl Barth jumps to mind immediately as one who saw his, you know, his instructors, his, those that taught him, um, von Harnack in particular sign on to Kaiser Wilhelm's war proposal at the beginning of the first war that leads him directly to say, no, there's a sense of special revelation that's outside of all of this and is unique and important because look where this gets us. Um, so I think certainly that idea of, you know, watching those that we trust to make moral decisions follow a path we find really immoral um, is certainly certainly falls in that in that context. I think there is the only danger to that. I think is it starts to pull us away from the idea of what's my own stake in that. You know what what is how this affects me? Because I think where the military sees this so profoundly is because. You know, as a veteran myself, I mean, if when you go and you sign up and you say, I'm going to put my honor and pledge myself in a lot of ways to this cause, seeing it betrayed is a betrayal of that commitment that I made at the same time. There's something very personal. It's a betrayal of my involvement. It's a betrayal of my sense of duty. So when I was in an Abu Ghraib happens, for example, that idea just that our side is doing things like this that violate that shared value there is something particular that gets bought up in that. And perhaps in the Trump example, you know, it's kind of a shared commitment to values, but one that's made a little bit less directly. You sharing a little bit about your background, Brian, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you um, moved from your time in the military to uh, this work, what that path looked like for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, So I was in the Air Force for eight years. Um, I spent the last, uh, let's see, six of that as a weather officer and the last few in a really niche version of uh, kind of community there that does army support and works with folks um, closer to the front line um, in that respect. So it ends up being special operations weather team. Uh, folks who are basically trained meteorologists, trained weather observers, but also have all the tactical skills to go out with the army um, and kind of serve as however they need to on the front. But their purpose is to be folks that kind of take scientific data and produce intelligence so that we can get the correct packages in from the air there. So medevac helicopters, close air support missions, all those things are really weather dependent. So it's really helpful to have somebody write in the thick of things, so to speak. Um, so I was an officer and did that. I, my last assignment at Fort Bragg was to lead a unit of about 22 folks. Um, I left in 2007. So during a really high ops tempo time, we're deployed constantly piecemeal with different units in Iraq and Afghanistan. And miraculously, um, you know, there were no, we'd suffered no combat casualties. Um, we'd never, or I should say no combat fatalities. We did have a few, um, folks that were injured. Um, but for me, there's a two folks that, that used to serve in that unit in the time since I left, um, had died by suicide. Um, there've been several other examples working from that, that I could see, um, profound, mental health issues, I suppose, and folks coming back that didn't seem to quite fit and be encompassed by that idea of PTSD again. And that took on a really kind of personal dimension for me. I think if I'm honest, I was struggling with elements of moral injury myself uh, when I got out that I can recognize now. Um, As fate would have it, I got out 
went directly into seminary um, for three years, which um, is a way I think of me trying to look back. I can say this, trying to understand my own faith and if it could answer for the kind of violence I'd seen, the kind of violence I participated in and witnessed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so what I found there is that, you know, a love for theological language, um, folks like Jürgen Moltmann, for example, really inspired me um, as somebody who I don't like diagnosing other people with moral injury per se, but I think who experienced moral injury in a fairly profound way uh, himself and found a way of talking about faith and hope and salvation in a way that encompassed that, that took account of that kind of violence. Um, And to me, again, I just found a language that described it in ways that also weren't being described elsewhere. Theology has that capacity to talk about this. I mean, for me, you know, one of the things that I think theology contributes to the idea of moral injury is that this idea is about redemption, about sin, about guilt, about, you know, atonement, about reconciliation. Those are natural ways in which religious discourse, and particularly within Christian theology, speaks to a really moral sense of ourselves that I think pushes up against the boundaries of certain clinical conceptual vocabularies. Um, you know, and that's not to disparage it at all. I think clinical discipline is really helpful in talking about moral injury. But when you talk about that idea of what do I do if somebody's real, if I feel really guilty about this and that's really hampering me, even the best treatment manuals recommend essentially talking to a benevolent moral authority or somebody in a place that, you know, is a, It sounds a lot like a clinical stand-in for clergy or religious person. Um, And I think the value in that is this is the way naturally as human civilization we've found to talk about our moral self through those kinds of terms, certainly in the Christian kind of influenced Western cultures. And so I think it's helpful just to step back into that. For me, uh, I see what I do is trying to highlight all the ways in which we can explore that. in ways that I think help people find frameworks of meaning, find their own values, um, and recover from moral injury. Brian, I wondered if you could give us some, maybe some specific examples that either that has come up in your research, or I know, uh, because I sit next to you and I hear you, uh, prep for your lectures. I know you use, uh, <laughs> film as a, a medium to kind of talk about, uh, you know, different examples of moral injuries. I wonder if you could share some of those, uh, whatever you feel comfortable with, uh, with our listeners. Yeah. So I think film's a great way into things, obviously for a couple of reasons. One, I think in a very Augustinian sense of understanding how our own values are formed, war films, you know, are the way that many of us experience the, um, ideas about combat and what we think war is like. Um, it's as close as most people are going to get without being there to some semblance of it. And so, as you know, I teach a third year module here at Durham where we look at that and then kind of think about with the idea, how does this impact how we think about war? How does it present it? How does it present combat? How does it present values there? Um, how do we understand um, things like that. So a lot of my intention there is tend, kind of to get students to look at how they're reacting to it. How is that? How are those movies playing on their values that they know culturally? So, you know, British students here, for example, we watched 1917. And I think a lot of them responded to that idea of, yeah, this really, this feels personal to me. And I remember reacting thinking, well, you know, we watched Saving Private Ryan as well. And I'm like, it's, you know, that appeals, I feel the personal pull of that so much more deeply. And it's just fascinating to talk about that. So there's one sense in which paying attention to how they kind of tug on common cultural values and what that means is really interesting in terms of their formation there. But there are a few good, really good examples too, where we actually see morally injured persons. Um, my favorite one to point out, I think, uh, because it is a difficult example is in the um, Mel Gibson film, uh, Hacksaw Ridge. So Andrew Garfield plays Desmond Doss, um, whose Medal of Honor citation is actually played down a bit in the movie. It's, his story is incredible. Um, but his dad, played by Hugo Weaving, 
is, I think, a really interesting and nuanced portrayal of somebody who's experienced moral injury. He plays a World War One veteran who has clearly, I think he is the only survivor of his group of friends that went to the, that went to the war and he's a troubled person. He's not a person that we, you know, watching the film that you'd like, he has a deeply, uh, you know, uh, we might say very harmful relationship with his family. He's depicted as an abuser of his wife. He even pulls a gun on her in several places. Um, but you can see, I think, come out in the film this haunting quality that how Hugo Weaving does a masterful job portraying him that you can't quite let go of his humanity, even as you see him doing all these horrible things. And I think it connects back to somebody who's really struggling to make sense of the world in a way to find himself as a, as somebody who um, I think probably has a sense of worth, who has a sense of meaning, who for whom the world makes sense. And that's not to say that this is how everybody who experiences moral injury is. They're certainly not going to be dangerous. They're certainly not going to be um, violent necessarily. But I think that's a very vivid portrayal of somebody who is struggling with that and who is troubled in ways that we can't simply say is post-traumatic stress. I'll say this for me. I'll, I'll, I'll tell an example of, the, uh, of where this hits home for me. In Afghanistan, for example, of all the different things that happened there, one thing always sticks out for me. And that's, um, I was in Bagram Air Base, which interestingly enough, is in a part of Afghanistan that has landmines still all over it. There's a section of the base where if you run inside the wire at the on the airbase at the time, just off the runway is an active minefield within the perimeter. So if you don't pay attention to the signs, you can wander into an active minefield while still on the base. Um, and one day there was an eight-year-old boy uh, who stepped on a mine just outside of our own compound um, in the base. He, you know, I think he, you know, immediately lost both his legs and eventually died from uh, the explosion of the mine. For whatever reason, that stuck with me deeply. Um, I think about that. I find myself having nightmares about that. Um, and when my three children were born, all after I got home um, from that conflict, my nightmare would shift as to each one when each one was born that they were the boy um, in the dream. And to me, I think that reflects this haunting idea that that shouldn't have been like that. Um, in a weird way, I think, you know, maybe I'm too reflective and know too much about this to kind of analyze myself. But I think what I have a hard time getting over is he didn't, there's no sense of value of what we're fighting for that should have cost the life of this poor eight year old boy um, who just happened to get caught up in all of this. And you can make it a grand Imperial thing of yep, two empires fighting mine, his home. And then he's the one that suffers from it. Um, but I think that sense that this is not in a broader sense, we didn't come here to, you know, kill an eight year old boy. We didn't come to do these kinds of things that feels like a betrayal of a value that I think those civilian deaths from what I can tell also are haunting to others at the same time, folks that it maybe even our concept, our actions, the things that we are a part of had consequences for someone else. I think those are things that in strange ways stick with us and cause us to really kind of explore that. Was this the right thing to do? Um, what's the, and then once we start going there, like I said, it, it becomes difficult to understand how that reflects our larger values. Was that lived out in this example? Was that lived out amongst, you know, for the poor, you know, for this poor boy who stepped on this mine and lost his life at that point? How does that, you know, what does that say about the greater value of spreading democracy or what we're there to do or what? or these grand ideals that I think we hold up as cultural values. Um, yeah, I think there's something profound there and that it makes us question that. And 
lose, I think, a grip on what social trust looks like. If this is what I was sent here to do, I was sent here to and signed up to do some good in the world. And I think that's a key part of moral injury, perhaps we haven't talked about yet, but I didn't do this because I thought, you know, there would be, I would be doing something I didn't want to do that was against my values. Most people sign up to do something noble and put their honor on the line because it's something they believe in. And I think that idea that there's really negative moral consequences for both themselves and for others becomes deeply haunting and makes us deeply suspicious of institutions that are meant to uphold those values, whether the military, church in many places as well, government, all those things that we expect can act justice and do what's right and to uphold those values. I think it makes us deeply question that. Thanks, Brian, for sharing that really powerful and deeply personal story. Really, We really appreciate that. Um, I know our listeners will as well. And I think that really um, gives us a, a, a haunting but good picture, a very concrete picture of what moral injury is um, when it's it's not your fault. It's not one person's fault or another, and it's traumatic, but it's not it it's very fuzzy and murky and awful all the, all the way through and yet it doesn't it, and i feel like if we if we stay there it can just seem like moral injury gives us the tools to kind of diagnose certain issues and problems that we can see that it you know it's not ptsd it's not necessarily trauma that's been inflicted to us but it's something we've participated in. I wondered if you could say a bit more about the way forward. Um, I know you've done a lot of work with moral repair. Um, if you just say, okay, we know there's an issue. How, where do we go from here? How do we live? Yeah, I think there's, you know, one part of, I think understanding moral injury is still the key. I think we're exploring different avenues of recovery, but one thing we know is just naming it as such and talking about it in ways that I think hopefully allow people to recognize their own experiences and understand themselves is a first huge step in moving towards repair. I think another huge part that the church has to play and that theology really brings to this for me is that it takes the idea of guilt seriously, but without making it incredibly blameworthy. Um, I think that idea that I think the pressure most people feel if they were to say, I feel really morally ambiguous about a lot of things I did, you know, over there speaking from a veteran perspective here, if somebody says I experienced deep guilt about that, that makes people uncomfortable. And I think their responses to that are often to either say, Oh, that's not your fault. Don't feel guilty about that to try to ameliorate it. And it comes from a good place. We don't want other people to suffer and we don't want to see them. We want to try to, you know, contextualize that in a way that says, I don't feel bad about that. But I think what theology has to offer us is it takes it seriously and it can meet them where they are and say, okay, we do participate in systems. We do make choices within that word. And we do take on responsibility and we feel guilty for that. Um, You know, knowing that, you know, in the Christian church, the idea of confession or doing penance and pronouncing some kind of absolution is a way of understanding that taking that guilt seriously and saying, yeah, we, you know, we, we do stand guilty. We, there isn't, there's some way in which we, we're not exactly who we're supposed to be and that's okay. And ideas of confession and reparation are a key part of that and just naming it. But one other thing we found, you know, where theology really helps meet folks is that experience of lament um, and just that capacity that recognizes and says, this was horrible. Here is the space to acknowledge, you know, without any pressure, without any defense of a value or an idea that puts somebody there, without defending the cause, without defending anybody, being able to lament, particularly as we encounter it uh, in scripture and lamentations, where you can blame everything and everybody up to God, God's self is a really helpful way, I think, of just recognizing there is space. And I think within that, um, you know, one of my colleagues, Michael Yandel, has this great book out called War and Negative Revelation. And a lot of what he says is almost this idea that when we lament, we find the value that we actually do want to recover in naming the thing that's hauntingly broken 
um, and naming that value that's violated. And I think that can be a great use in just moving forward and talking about that and finding an idea of self. I think there's another sense in which religious communities have a real uh, role to play in moving forward and restoring social trust. If somebody knows that this is a place that my guilt's taken seriously, that I can seriously talk about these things that happen that engages seriously that, whether it's lament or in other ritual practices that are meaningful, then I think there's a sense that we can restore some experience of moral framework in the world that matters. Um, so I think there's, those are, there are a lot of ways in which just both connecting with and identifying what moral injury is and then working through different ways of talking about it themselves are avenues towards some sense of healing. Thank you so much, Brian. That was so helpful. And we've really appreciated our conversation with you. Just as a last sort of note, do you want to tell us about your center and maybe let us know what's on the horizon for you? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm the executive director of the International Center for Moral Injury here at Durham. Um, and there's some really interesting, exciting things we're doing. Uh, we're, we've got a lot of research plans we hope to do uh, in the near future, but one of the studies we have going right now for, uh, is a collaborative work with other folks at um, Portsmouth University here in the UK and Southampton University that seeks to really measure moral injury um, amongst um, retired military chaplains in a British context. And one of the really valuable outcomes we hope to achieve there is just to get a number of kind of wrapped around this many folks experience moral injury, that duty to care for others actually is deeply morally injurious itself. And to have some kind of interrogate a little bit how different theological orientations matter, um, whether they're some are vulnerable, make one more vulnerable, or perhaps protect one against moral injury um, in wartime. I think naming some of those ways and the center looks to do that kind of research and help find ways in which different groups, clinicians, psychologists, psychiatrists that are doing work in this field might find the need and often do for understanding and paying more attention to religious and spiritual aspects of moral injury itself. Really kind of the goal of the center is to facilitate that kind of collaborative research into moral injury and to produce resources and results from those studies that I think will both illuminate moral injury in the particular context and um, perhaps suggest some avenues towards a more holistic way that we can work as a society to look at it. That's great. Thank you so much, Brian. We'll look forward to seeing more of your work. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, guys. 